You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey y'all, this is Leslie Ann. I'm so glad to have you here. This podcast is week six of Known, a nine-week study on the Gospel of John. In this lesson, we study John chapters 11 through 13 and discuss God's perfect timing. This teaching corresponds with the homework that begins on page 35 of the Learner Workbook, available for download at leslieannjones.com slash known. Have any of you ever been in charge of Thanksgiving dinner for your family? I've never been in charge. I have contributed a dish here or there, but being one of the younger generation in our family, I've never done it. So, so have, some of you have done it. Um, how hard is it to make sure that everything gets done at exactly the right time? <laughs> right? Right, you've only got the one oven. You've got your four burners on the stove. And so it's kind of, you know, this juggling act to make sure that everything gets done at exactly the right time. Um, timing is kind of everything with Thanksgiving dinner because nobody wants a burned roll. You know, you slide them in last and then you get busy doing the other finishing up things. The rolls are always burned. Or cold gravy or any of that. You know, it's just, it's it's an art to make sure that everything gets done at exactly the right time. Timing matters. It has to be perfect. When it comes to matters of faith, you know, God's timing is perfect. His rolls are never burned. His gravy is never cold. Everything always happens at exactly the right time. Um, for exactly the right reason, even though sometimes it may not seem like it, even though sometimes it may, you may think that he has forgotten something, <laughs> that he has left something out, really he hasn't. He's working things out in his big plan, and everything will come together in exactly the way he wants it to at exactly the right moment, but not a moment before just like those perfect Thanksgiving dinners. They all come together at the end. But in the middle of it, it looks like a big mess. If you walk into the kitchen, you can't figure out what's going on. So God's ways are perfect. He moves in exactly the right way at exactly the right time. And you can really see that clearly when we turn to the story of Lazarus. Now, when we left off last week, I don't know if you remember, but the Jews wanted to stone him. When we get to this story, you can understand why the disciples would be unwilling, maybe, to go back to Jerusalem. Because last time they were there, people tried to stone Jesus. And so they're saying, hey, Jesus, remember, last time we went back there, it wasn't so good. So are you sure you want to do this? And you can understand their trepidation. But Jesus had a reason for what he needed to do. And that's where we pick up in chapter 11, verse 1. It says, now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. His brother Lazarus was ill. Now, it's interesting that he puts that here, but it's kind of foreshadowing because it hasn't been mentioned yet. So I, I think he wants to just make that connection that the Mary he mentions in chapter 12 is the same Mary he's talking about here, who's Lazarus's sister. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That doesn't sound right, does it? 
when somebody calls you and says, dad is sick, he's in the hospital, something's wrong, what do you do? You go. You drop what you're doing and you go. That is your knee-jerk gut reaction to the bad news that someone is sick is that you go. Jesus had a close relationship with the family. It's spelled out quite clearly for us in verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and the message that they send to him also reminds him of his love for them. Lord, the one whom you love is ill. So it's quite clear that he cares for them. They had surely seen his ministry. They had surely been present for some of these miracles. They knew what Jesus was capable of. They knew that he could heal with a touch, that his words even could do the work for him. If you remember earlier in John, he healed the official son without even being there. So Jesus could heal Lazarus without going to Lazarus. He could just think the thought and Lazarus would be healed, and yet he doesn't. He abstains from doing anything, and the question is why? Why? If you were Mary and if you were Martha and you wrote this letter to Jesus, who is your close friend, who you love, you would expect him to do something about it because he has done something for all these other people. Surely he would do something for the one that he loves. And yet Jesus, it appears, does nothing. He does not go. He stays where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go too, so we can die with him. When I think about this story and I think about Mary and Martha and how they must have felt when Jesus didn't come, they send the message and they get no reply. I mean, maybe they thought that Jesus would come right away, but then he doesn't come. And, and when he didn't come, maybe they thought that Lazarus would just miraculously be healed from a distance like Jesus had done so many other times before. But he doesn't do that either. And in the meantime, while they are waiting, Lazarus dies. And that is the last thing that they expected to happen. And it happened anyway. But what they don't know is what's going on behind the scenes. They don't have the benefit of this conversation that Jesus has with the disciples where he tells them that Lazarus's sickness doesn't lead to death. It's not meant to lead to death. And that he's sick so that God may be glorified. They don't have that. But what I think we can learn from Lazarus's story is that God hears the requests and the pleas of the faithful, even when it seems like he doesn't. He hears and he knows. He knows what's best for us and he knows what we need even better than we do. And sometimes he abstains from giving us what we want, what we think we want, 
so that he can give us something better. He had a plan for Lazarus that was better than what Mary and Martha had in mind. Now, they could have never imagined that to get to that point, they would have to walk through death. That was not part of their plan. But God's ways are better than our ways. And his delay is not the same thing as his denial. You know, sometimes we wait and we wait and we wait, it seems like, for God to answer us, for God to do something. And though it may seem like he tarries, he knows what he's doing. And it is not for us to question those ways. It's for us to wait and to trust in faith. Now, there's going to be times just like it was for Martha and Mary when it seems like our prayers are going nowhere. Anybody ever been there? I have. Or when it seems like they're just bouncing off the ceiling, they're not going any further than our own room. We will wonder if God is listening. We will question whether or not he cares, and most of all, we'll want to know why. Sometimes it feels like if we could just know why, then we could deal with it a little bit better. But sometimes we only get to see the reasoning in retrospect. And sometimes it seems that God is trying to teach us something in the waiting, that we have to learn how to be people who wait well, because waiting, it seems like, is inevitable for all of us. We're all waiting on something. We have all been in those periods, whether it is waiting for the next phase of life or waiting for your house to sell or as a single woman waiting to get married or waiting for children or waiting for the next job to come along or waiting for healing or waiting for redemption or whatever the thing is, we are waiting. We are all going to visit a period of waiting at some point. The key is to learn how to trust in the waiting because what we learn from Lazarus is that there is a purpose in Jesus's delay. Now they couldn't see the purpose. They didn't know what it was, but he had a plan to restore life to Lazarus and he couldn't restore Lazarus's life until Lazarus had died. Lazarus had to die so that he could be resurrected. And sometimes I wonder if we see pain and we see hardship and we think, Lord, don't, don't leave me there. I don't want to go there. But in order for us to become the people that God wants us to be, we have to go through those things. Because without it, we wouldn't be shaped into, into the final form that he wants for us. It is necessary for us. When I think about all the signs and miracles that Jesus has done up to this point. You know, he's healed the blind. He's fed the 5,000. He has healed a lame man. He has healed the official son from far away. He's turned the water into wine. He has done all sorts of things. They have seen so much. But even though it's a stretch, a lot of those could perhaps be explained away especially um, in this modern age that we live in now. Doctors and nurses can do a wonder of miracles. The, the wonders of modern medicine are incredible. You know, they, are, they can practically make blind people see, right? They can resuscitate a heart that has stopped beating for a little while. 
that can bring you back from the brink of death. If you eat healthy enough, if you exercise frequently, if you have a healthy enough lifestyle, you can extend your life, theoretically, but only God can give it. No one else can create life. No one else can do those things. Only God can do that. That can't be explained by anything else. And so when we get to verse 17, when it says, Now when Jesus came, he found out that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. That's significant because their teaching at the time said that for up to three days, a spirit would kind of linger around the body. So somebody could die, but they could, the spirit could re-enter the body for up to three days. But after three days, you were really dead because you know, the body starts decaying. It is apparent that it's not going to come back to life at that point. So Jesus waited until they could not explain it any other way, until they could all agree that Lazarus was actually, in fact, dead. He had been in the tomb for four days and they buried people on the same day that they died so he had been dead for four days he was definitely dead there was no questioning that he was dead he said bethany was near jerusalem about two miles off and many of the jews had come to martha and mary to console them concerning their brother so when martha heard that jesus was coming she went and met him but mary remained seated in the house martha said to jesus lord if you had been here my brother would not have died but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. You know, we all have our own versions of the if-onlys, right? If only I had gotten there sooner. If only I hadn't stopped to do that. If only Daddy hadn't gotten sick. If only there wasn't that car accident. We all have our own set of if onlys but when Martha approaches Jesus with her if onlys if only you had been here sooner you could have done something about this he gently reproaches her with truth he says this is what you need to remember he points her to the only rock that will sustain her and what he says is interesting I am the resurrection and the life one of your questions was what does he mean by that we are accustomed to thinking of Jesus, of God, as the author of life. He is the one who created everything. He is the one who gives us life. He is the source of our life. He determines the beginning and the end of our days. We know all of these things about God. But when Jesus says that he is the resurrection, he means that he is reversing the cycle of sin and of death that has plagued us. Death is the worst effect of sin that there is, right? It is our worst enemy that we will face as humans. When he says, I am the resurrection, he means I am undoing death. I am making it as if it never happened. I am putting a stop to this terrible thing. And he's saying that he is the undoer of sin's effects. He's reversing the curse. 
And now, instead of this natural move from life to death, Jesus is turning it backwards and saying that we're moving from death to life. He's moving it back and he's erasing the effects of the fall. He's saying, I'm the one who restores life. I am the one who redeems. I am the one who makes all things new. And if you believe this, Martha, if you can grasp this truth in this moment, then you can face anything. You can make it through anything if you just hold on to this truth in this moment that I am the maker of life, I'm the giver of life, and I am the one who restores and redeems everything to make it as it was before sin ever happened. That's what the resurrection is all about. It's about that promise that God is making a new heavens and a new earth, that he is going to take these old broken down physical bodies of ours and make them glorious, that he's going to make everything better than it is now. He doesn't say that we're never going to taste death or that we'll never know suffering. He says that death doesn't get the final word and that for those who believe, Jesus promises that physical death is not the final chapter, that if you believe in him, you will never die, that true life, spiritual life, eternal life goes on even when your body dies. That is not the end. That's just the end of one chapter, not the end of the book for us. So he asks her, do you believe this? And she says, yes. Her confession is spot on. I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the one who is saving us all, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What did Martha say? The exact same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would would not have died, but Jesus responds to Mary in a different way than he did Martha. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So with Martha, he reminds her of the truth that she needs to hold on to get through it. And with Mary, he weeps with her. And the interesting thing is that Jesus knew going in who he was and what he was going to do. He knew before he ever got the message that Lazarus was sick. He knew that he was going to bring Lazarus back from the dead. He could have just popped up and said, don't worry, I got this. In 10 minutes, this is all going to be over. (laughs) There's no need for this cry and wipe away your tears. He didn't do that. He entered into her grief with her. He is a God who cares about our sorrows. He cares about our troubles so much so that he comes alongside us and feels them with us. Mary needed someone to be with her to share her grief. Martha needed someone to remind her of truth. Jesus 
gave both sisters what they needed in that moment. And I think there's a lesson here for us that when it comes to death and dying and grief and all of the hard things that we face in this world, you know, there's a time and there's a place for truth. And there's also a time and a place for grieving. You know, as believers, we know that death is not final. And I think sometimes because we don't know what to say or we feel uncomfortable when we're comforting our friends who are grieving, we want to say, we want to remind them, you know, God has a plan. God knows what he's doing. Don't worry. Everything's going to be okay when sometimes they just need us to grieve with them for a little while. They're not ready for the truth yet. You know, there's a time and a place for both. And it's up to us to discern what people really need. But the other thing that I pointed out in your homework is that in verse 33, when it says he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, that the translation there is pretty weak for what the word actually means. It means he was angry. Jesus is quaking with rage. That it's not, it's not like a gentle word here. It's not like he was just a little upset. He is angry about what is going on. And so the question is, what's he angry at? Because we think when we hear he was deeply moved, we think, oh, he was so sad. And he was, but he was also angry. And so when we come down to determining what the anger is for, it's not directed at the people. It's not, it's, he's not angry with the crowds of the weeping and wailing Jews, whether they were sincere in their grief or not. He's not angry at them. He's not angry at Mary and Martha for their sorrow. He's standing there. He's in front of the tomb. Someone he loves has just died. And the only reason that they are dead is because sin is present in the world. Death is a direct result of sin. Without sin, there would be no death. The anger, I think, is a righteous anger directed toward the situation, toward the fallenness of this world that we live in, that that he is in a place and he's standing face to face with the most profound effect of sin and it ignites his fury. He's furious at the sin. And, you know, we, we say that God hates sin, not the sinner. Well, why do you think God hates sin? Could it be that God hates sin because of what it does to us? We die because of sin. We suffer because of sin. Jesus hates the way things are in this world because of sin. We know that God hates sin. And he's standing there and he's looking at the effect of that sin and it makes him angry. Sin should make us angry. We should be upset that this world is broken. That should upset us. You know, the ravages of sin are all around us and it should upset us. Jesus is a God who cares. He cares about the way that sin has affected us. He cares that we have to deal with it. And in a world where that's filled with death and destruction and wars and disease and pain and sorrow and darkness, all of these things that are an effect of sin, 
you can go two ways when you look at the brokenness and fallenness of the world. You can wonder, does God care? If God cared, he would not allow this to happen, right? Or the other option is that you can say he cared so much that he came. He looked at it face to face and he said, no, this will not get victory. Death will have no victory here. He cares. He hates sin because of what he, it does to us. And he came so that we can finally and forever be free from its effects. His suffering, his death, all prove the depth of his care for us, for this broken world. So then we get to verse 38. Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, Martha, ever practical Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He stinketh. Right? He stinks. Hello? He's been dead for four days. Do not open the tomb. Because even though she believes that Jesus is who he says he is, that he has the power to give life, that he has the power to heal, I don't think she had quite made the leap that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. The Son always points to the Father. He always gives glory to God. He always says, my power, my authority, everything I am comes from him. He always, always, always points back to God. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. He comes stumbling out like a mummy. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Out of Lazarus's death comes something beautiful. Jesus is showing them. It's a, it's a living parable of what he is doing with each of our spirits. Ephesians Two says that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses, but God has made us alive. So spiritually speaking, we are resurrected. We have new life. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Jesus is in the business of recreating, of giving new life to us. And he shows them through Lazarus. Lazarus is this picture, this physical, this living, breathing, again, picture of what is happening to our spirits in sin we are dead we are just as dead as Lazarus was in that tomb we stink sin is foul it's nasty and it taints us and causes us to die on the inside but Jesus says that that is not the final word that he is resurrecting us from the inside out just like Lazarus we have to die before we can be made alive. And so, of course, the people, the crowd, the mourning people, they see it and they talk about it. Can you imagine how that kind of news would spread? The did you hears and can you believe that happened? And no, surely that didn't happen. No, I was there. I saw it happen. I shook Lazarus's hand after he came out. He is for real alive. 
I have seen him. Have you seen him? And so you can just imagine how things picked up from here. Many saw and believed as a result of what they had seen. It was an undeniable proof that Jesus was God. You know, before this miracle, the Pharisees kind of tried to explain things away. They tried to discredit the blind man. If you remember last week, they discredited his testimony. They were like, you're just a beggar. What do you know? We're students of Moses. But they can't deny this one because Lazarus was dead and now he's not. And he's walking around for all the world to see that he's not dead anymore. And they can't have it. It says, some of them, many believed, verse 45, verse 46, but some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They don't even try to deny it anymore. This is what he did. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? And this is the heart of the matter for them. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. There you have it. They were afraid of what was going to happen if they let Jesus continue on with the way he was. It was only a matter of time. They could see it. The signs were all there. The writing was on the wall that if Jesus continued on in his ministry in this way, that life as they knew it was going to be over, fully and finally over. The Romans would not put up with it, and they knew it. So they put out a warrant for his arrest. Caiaphas made, suggested, who was the high priest, suggested, let's just get rid of him. Let's take care of this problem. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus knew that restoring Lazarus's life would mark the beginning of the end for him. So Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim and stayed there with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? Is he going to come? Have you seen him? Is he coming? What do you think? Is he, will, he, will he stay away? Does he know that they want to kill him? Will, will he have the nerve? to show up if he's smart he won't come right but what does jesus do he comes he comes anyway and we get to chapter 12 and it's the scene is a festive one right the people it's a dinner party the people are gathering for passover they're coming for this feast and this celebration It's the week before Passover, six days before the Passover. Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Let's honor you. Let's have a dinner in your honor. Hey, Lazarus is alive. Let's celebrate. Martha served. Of course she did. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Would it ever occur to you to wipe someone's feet with your hair? I mean, I honestly don't know if the thought would ever cross my mind. In fact, before I got it out, I'd probably make sure and put my hair up in a ponytail. Like, let me get this out of the way so it doesn't get in there. Um, But the 
from the details that John gives us, you know, she takes her hair down and she's wiping his feet with her hair. He tells us how much it was a pound of pure nard. So it wasn't watered down. It wasn't diluted. It was the good stuff. So think about your favorite perfume. How much does one ounce cost? A one ounce bottle of perfume can be nearly $100, right? It is not cheap. This stuff that Mary had was even more expensive than that. It says it was worth up to 300 denarii. That's in verse 5 when Judas starts complaining about it. Now, one denarii was one day's wages for a general laborer. So when you take away all the Sabbath days, 52 days, then it's about a year's wages. The expense certainly demonstrates the sincerity of her devotion. Like, it is an extravagant act of worship. You know, the oil was often used in celebrations. Maybe not a whole pound of it. That was a lot. But they would kind of pour it on their head, and it was, it was part of their festivals, and, and it was part of their customs. But it was, the, it was that she got the good stuff. You know, you could buy some kind of knockoff, knockoff nard. That's funny. Um, but it was not pure. There is an anointing account in all four of the Gospels. Okay, so in Mark and in Matthew, it specifically, it's during Passover, during this last week of Jesus' life. And they say that it's at the house of Simon the leper, and that a woman, she's unnamed, comes and she breaks the jar and she pours it over his head. That's what they say in Matthew and Mark. In Luke, the story of the anointing comes a little bit earlier in his life. It's not during the week of Passover. Um, he is at a Pharisee's home. He's been invited to a Pharisee's home, and he's there. And a woman of ill repute, a sinner, comes, and she breaks it, and she cries, she, and she washes his feet. She cleans it up with her tears and her hair. Okay. So it's very possible there could have been two accounts of it happening, but it seems for certain that this story in John 12 is the same that Matthew and Mark were talking about, but it was probably different from the story that Luke shared. Similar, but, but different because of the details that he has given us. To attend to the feet of someone was a job that was reserved for the lowest of servants. It was not something that anyone would do. And so Mary anointing him and his feet shows great humility and great devotion at the same time. It's a picture of extravagant abandon. Like she was so caught up in her worship of him that she unbound her hair, which Jewish women did not do in public. It was always up. They did not let loose their hair. And so she took down her hair and she was just solely focused on worshiping him in that moment. And I think that flowed directly out of gratitude for what he had done for her and her family. You know, when you have seen God move in wondrous ways for someone you love in your own life, it moves you to worship. It drives you to your knees in adoration and in thanksgiving. And that's what she's doing she spends this precious gift on him her worship is the natural response to what he had done for her this overwhelming gratitude 
this extravagant and abundant thanksgiving. She pours it out on him because he has given her brother life. Lazarus is sitting at the table with them. He is there eating the food, drinking the drink, laughing at the jokes, telling some stories. He is there alive as live can be because Jesus gave him grace and mercy and restored his life. And Mary recognizes that and she pours it all out in this blessing. Now Judas doesn't like it because he kept the money bag. It says, and this is the only one of the Gospels really that mentions any, anything kind of shady about Judas before you get to the actual betrayal. So this is a hint that Judas is not so good. And then we're going to come up on that later on. Well, like I said before, Lazarus is walking around and the people who are in charge can't deny that he's a living, breathing miracle. And so they decide they have to do something about him too. So now not only is there a plot to kill Jesus, there's a plot to kill Lazarus as well. It says in verse 9, when the large crowd, have you noticed how many times it says the large crowd, the masses of people learned that Jesus was there. They came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now, isn't it ironic that the people who were supposed to be upholding righteousness are the shadiest people of all? They're the ones who are plotting and um, trying to work all this unrighteousness out. Passover is coming near. It is. It's coming. And all these people are coming to Jerusalem for the festival. Now, on a normal day, Jerusalem had a population of about 40,000 people. But during festivals, it could swell to about six times that size. And so just like now, say, New Year's Eve in New York City, all the authorities and the government officials and the you know, police officers, all the law enforcement people, they're going to be kind of on high alert because when that many people come together, anything can happen. People are crazy when they get in big crowds. They just are. And so they're on high alert. That's why the Jewish official, officials were on such pins and needles to get something done, to do something about Jesus because of this. So the people are excited. All these rumors are swirling around about Jesus. They've heard that he has raised the dead. They can see Lazarus. Everybody's talking about it. They don't stop talking about it because it's that amazing. It's astounding what Jesus has done. And so by the time Jesus comes into Jerusalem in verse 12, they've gathered. They hear that he's coming and they welcome him as a king says, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, this is a verse from Zechariah 9.9, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So he fulfills this Old Testament prophecy. He also rides into town in exactly the same way that Solomon rode into town when he was being crowned king. And so he is very clearly identifying himself as the Messiah by doing this. He is making 
a statement about who he is. And the mood when he comes in is a celebration. It's a big party. They're all excited. They're full of excitement because news of the miracles has spread. They want to see him. They hope to catch a glimpse of him. And they're hoping beyond hope that he is the Messiah who's going to rescue them from this Roman oppression that they are facing. But for Jesus, it was just as good as a funeral procession because riding into town that day in the way that he rode into town, it was practically an invitation for the authorities to arrest him. He was confirming their worst fears about him. And they didn't like it, and he knew exactly what he was doing. He, he was in control the whole time, and he knew. He knew it was about to happen, and we can see that in the next section. Um, in verse 23, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. For all of these chapters, we have read all 12 chapters of John, the three years that this ministry has spanned. Jesus has said over and over and over again that the time isn't right. My hour has not yet come. And here he says, it's time. When I read these verses for the first time today, I couldn't help but thinking of a pregnant woman. (laughs) Because for nine months, it's just this anticipation this something's going to happen you're making plans you're preparing for the arrival of the baby you're waiting for the signs that it's time to go to the hospital and when it's time to go you say it's time and just like that long expected child you know Jesus has been looking forward to this moment since the beginning of time he was born for this purpose it it says you know i have come to this hour for this reason that is why he came he came to give his life up just like labor pangs you know they've been closer and closer together every time he has performed a miracle every time he has spoken to the jews every time he has witnessed to an individual or shared truth It's like another labor pain. It's getting closer and closer and closer together until we get to the crucifixion. Jesus knows that it's soon. He calls for everyone who is listening to come. I think this is important because this section is kind of tricky, this next section that we come to. He says, Father, glorify your name. And then the voice trembles from heaven. God speaks audibly, which... I don't know about you, but that might be a little frightening to me. My kids don't even like thunder. Can you imagine if it was thunder that spoke? (laughs) How would you react to that? So some people think it proves that Jesus is who he is. Some people believe it immediately. Other people try to explain it away. Just like everything else, they divide. It divides. People are on one side or the other. 
Jesus says, This voice is come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up to the earth, will draw all people to myself. He goes on in verse 35. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So he issues this plea to these unbelieving crowds over and over and over again. He invites them to believe. And then in verses, I guess the end of 36b through 43, we get this explanation from John about why they don't believe. And he links it to these prophecies in Isaiah that say that the people will not believe. They cannot believe, he says, because the Lord has blinded their eyes, this is verse 40, and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Does that disturb anyone? That God would harden the hearts of people so that they cannot believe in him? So that hearing they can't understand and seeing they can't see? It is hard sometimes to balance this severe judgment with God's also severe mercy. You know, we know that God is merciful and compassionate, but also that he is just. And I think that the way that we balance these two out is to remember, you know, Jesus cares deeply for them. If he didn't want them to repent, he would not have continued to preach to them, to share the truth with them, to point to himself, say, believe in me if you would only believe. In Luke chapter 19, he weeps over the city of Jerusalem. He weeps for their unbelief. It grieves him. But Romans 1 tells us, he describes a people that are so set on doing things their own way and on rebelling against God that God turns them over to the desires of their own hearts and he gives in and he lets them do what they wanted to do the whole time. He turns them over. He gives them what they wanted. And I think this hardening is, is kind of the same thing. You know, he gave them chance after chance after chance to repent and they always refused. And that's a scary thing to me that God would give up, with them, give up on them He turns them over to themselves. He sentences them to unrepentance. And that's a hard truth about the gospel is that there does come a point when it might be too late. If someone has demonstrated repeated rebelliousness, repeated refusals to listen, if they have rejected God over and over and over again, then it's entirely possible that God would throw up his hands and say, fine, have it your way. I tried. This is a completely shallow illustration of this. But a few weeks ago, back in February, you remember we had like a couple of 70-degree days? Well, at that time, I was cleaning out the girls' closets. I was trading out winter and summer clothes. I was just getting the spring clothes ready to go into the closets, sorting through what we had, trying to figure out what we needed to buy. And I had this big bin of summer clothes sitting in the girls' room. It is not in their drawers yet, but it's there waiting to go in. And one day before school, Kendall decided that she wanted to wear a sleeveless dress to school. It was supposed to be like 40 degrees that day. And I kept telling her, Kendall, 
you do not want to wear that dress. We have to pick something else. You cannot wear that dress. If you wear that dress, you have to wear a long sleeve shirt under it. You can't wear that. That dress is not a good choice. And it was just this major meltdown, a huge fit over the dress until finally I was like, you know what? Wear the dress. Get cold. Enjoy that. She has to learn the consequences of her own actions. This is an altogether different story. You know, this is so much more severe than getting cold one day at school. This is an eternity of separation from God because they have refused to submit to him. It is a scary, scary truth. But Jesus says, whoever believes in me believes not, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he says in verse 49, I haven't spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the father has told me. His words carry the authority of the father. And then in chapter 13, we zoom in. Now it's all this family talk with the disciples. And in this chapter, this foot washing chapter that is so famous, we've all heard it a hundred times. It's, it starts a lot like chapter 12 does with this foot washing ceremony, right? In chapter 12, the woman is kneeling before Jesus. Mary is kneeling before him. She is honoring him. She is worshiping him as she washes his feet. And in this case, Jesus is the one giving the honor. He is the one who is doing the foot washing. He becomes the God who kneels, the one who bows before their people and saves them. Just like in Philippians 2, that chapter, that passage I had you read where Christ humbles himself. He, he lays aside his glory. He comes to earth as a man and not just a man but as a servant and not just a servant but as one who dies and not just as one who dies but as one who dies on the cross. It's this constant like lowering of himself to the lowest level ever. And just like in Philippians 2, he lowers himself by coming to earth. He takes off his heavenly glory and comes to earth. He takes off his outer garment and puts on a towel. He puts on the form of a servant. That's what Philippians 2 tells us. So he puts on the towel. He takes on the form of the servant. And he kneels before his people. And he cleanses them. Jesus tells Peter, unless I wash you, you cannot be clean. And he's not necessarily talking about the feet, but this soul cleansing. You know, unless our souls have been scrubbed clean by Jesus, then we have no hope. Jesus' whole purpose in life was to spend his life for others. He came so that he could serve. He came so that he could die to consider our own need for redemption above his right for honor and glory. He left the halls of heaven. He laid aside the splendor of his majesty and he came to earth where he was constantly reviled. He was constantly rejected. He was sentenced to death, a criminal's death. He was given a brutal and unfair trial. He was rejected by his own people. And that was his choice. He did that willingly. He gave it up willingly. And when you consider how he served us in that way, what's a little foot washing compared to that? 
Jesus here in this chapter gives two marks of the church. He calls them to service. That's what he says to them in verses 13 and following. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. If I am your Lord and teacher and have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. So he calls us to selfless service, just as he has done. And he also calls us to love. That's the second thing he calls the church to in verse 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. And how has Jesus loved us? Romans 5 says that Jesus shows his love for us. God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we serve and love one another well, then the world sits up and takes notice. They see, they can tell that something different is going on. And our best witness to this world, it's not in politics or in legislating morality or in posting or reposting links to articles on Facebook. It's not in any of those things. Our best witness to Jesus is demonstrating his love. And we do that by putting others' needs above our own, by exchanging selfishness for selflessness, by loving people well, whether they deserve it or not, and by always pointing to Jesus, who has loved us and served us better than we could ever imagine. And I'm afraid that far too often we are known, we the church, we Christians, we believers, we're known for what we are against instead of what we are for. And I think it's time for us to change the conversation. and Let's be people who are known for this extravagant love, for this unearthly, superhuman love. Let's be known for loving others and for loving them well. What kind of difference do you think that would make if even within the walls of our churches we loved each other the way that Jesus loved us? And none of it's easy. It is not easy. It can only be done through his strength. But this is what he's called us to. And Jesus says that when we do it, verse 35, all people will know that you are mine. If you want to be known as one of Jesus's, we have to have love for one another. Father, I thank you so much for this time. I thank you for your word and your faithfulness to us. Thank you for the great love and mercy that you have shown us. Thank you for your perfect timing, for orchestrating all of history to come together at just the right moment so that we might be saved. Father, I pray that you would fill us with your light and with your life, with your love and your mercy so that we may share it with this world. God, we love you and it's in your name we pray these things.